And I want everyone to encounter the sacred Black feminine because I think it will heal our spiritual imagination. But I also want everyone to find the sacred whatever they are. Because that will also heal our spiritual imagination. Because white Christ hasn't even hasn't done that even for white people and for white men. If white people actually felt sacred, the world would be a different place. Welcome to Contemplating Now, a podcast focused on the intersection of contemplation and social justice. Through interviews with scholars, mystics, and activists, this podcast will focus on contemplative spiritualities, direct relationship with issues of social justice. I'm your host, Cassidy Hall, a filmmaker, podcaster, pastor, and student, and I'm here to learn with you. Christina Cleveland, PhD, is a social psychologist, public theologian, author, and activist. She is the founder and director of the Center for Justice and Renewal, as well as its sister organization, Sacred Folk, which creates resources to stimulate people's spiritual imaginations and support their journeys towards liberation. An award-winning researcher, and former professor at Duke University's Divinity School, Christina now lives in Boston, Massachusetts. Christina's book, God is a Black Woman, weaves personal pilgrimage and societal reckoning to dismantle the cultural white male God and uncover the sacred Black feminine, and ultimately, hope, healing, and liberation. Well, Dr. Christina Cleveland, thank you so much for joining me today. It's really great to have you here. Thank you. It's wonderful to connect with you and your community. So one of the ways I love to begin is kind of giving us a guidepost for the conversation. And that's by asking, how do you define the words contemplation and mysticism? And from that, maybe what do they mean to you or how do you see them lived out in the world today? Yeah, I think contemplation is mindfulness. It's being present to whatever is. And so it can encompass pretty much any activity as long as I'm being as fully present as I can be. And I, I think of my grandmother who makes these amazing sweet potato pies and um, just being in the kitchen with her and seeing how she pours so much presence into it. And she's like often praying um, because she comes from like an old school black Pentecostal background, but sometimes she's just thinking about us kid, grandkids, or she's just thinking about the neighbors that she's going to be giving or selling her pies to. And I, I think of that as contemplation. And she, she seems so centered too, even when she's doing it. So I would say, you know, any sort of mindfulness feels contemplative to me. And I think as someone who's a budding womanist, the more that's integrated with everyday life makes sense to me. So I think in- integrated contemplation is really powerful. Although I do love getting away for quiet times. I I think what's become important for me is like in the midst of traffic, being mindful of my emotions and what's coming up. In terms of mysticism, I would say mysticism is connection with one's inner spiritual authority. And I think that can come from an experience or a union with the divine as an outside source, but it also could come from a connection or experience with your inner divine and trusting that above other feedback and ways of knowing. In that way, do you see your sense contemplation as a a leading into a possible place of mysticism? Potentially, yeah. Sometimes I I think being mindful and present can lead me into deeper conscious contact with the divine in me and the divine as as a as a woman, as I would say, you know, the cosmos is the body of God, so the divine throughout. Um, But I also think that sometimes 
not being in contemplation brings me into mysticism too, because I see, I, I experience um, something jarring or something confusing and I'm not mindfully approaching it. So it really throws me off. And then I'm able to bring that to the divine. <laughs> and I would say that's mysticism too. So I think what's powerful is that either pathway can get me into a mystical space as long as I'm open to that at some point. It's amazing how much I get there accidentally. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. In your new book, God is a Black Woman, you remind the reader that Christian mystics throughout the centuries have savored the feminine in Christ and have affirmed the divine mother working within the person of Jesus Christ. And so my question here is, do you think it's possible for us to kind of continually get back to those roots, which, you know, you're doing amazing work in this book. This work is just so, so important. And yes, in a world doused with white supremacy and patriarchy, how do we, how do we really get back to the truth of that, to the crux of that? Yeah, I think it's a challenge. You know, I think the world was simpler <laughs> for those mystics back in the day. Many of them were medieval mystics. And unless, um, and the trappings of capitalism, <laughs> which I think is like an excellent partner to white supremacy and patriarchy, were not as um, available to everyone. If you were a serf, if you were um, like a low level monk or nun, I mean, access to power was not even a possibility. And so you saw people looking for power in other ways, in this case, connection with the divine, you know, power with rather than power over. And now, especially in the United States and in the West, there are so many carrots that like capitalism, white supremacy, patriarchy, white male God is putting out there to lure us into his fold. And, and I think the church is incredibly complicit in that. So I do think that there's a level of subversion that's necessary. There's a level of like kind of anarchy against the system that's necessary. And it's very radical. I think it's much more radical now than it, than it was for many of those mystics. Although it's not... Uh, it's worth noting that many of those mystics ended up getting excommunicated, killed, or something something horrible happened to them because of their radical approach to the divine. But I think for us, it's it's probably more more along the lines of like social exclusion, and then just frankly not having the language to do it. You know, I think it's really, really, really hard to get off the plantation, and that's why people don't. <laughs> it's not like it's easy. And so people are just like, oh, well, let's just walk off. It's, it's actually really hard because our entire life is, is interwoven with these systems. Yeah. And this, this subversion that you're talking about, this kind of like transcendence um, of these systems in that way, do you see those mystics and even modern day mystics as also activists? Potentially. I think because in particular, the culture here in the West is so individualistic. And because so much of the way that mysticism is understood in the United States is white, I hesitate to connect mysticism with activism without like a huge asterisk. <laughs> because the vast majority of people who call themselves mystics, I would say, are actually really just trying to help white people connect with some sense of peace. And they're not in solidarity with like black trans women. And they're not trying to think about, well, what does mysticism look like in this, con in, in this context? And, and they're not working against the systems of capitalism that keep people working 80 hours a week just to put food on their table. They're not even, they're not working for any of the things that would create some space 
for other people to connect with, with mysticism, because I do think space and time is part of that. Um, and rest, (laughs) you can't, you can't even dream if you're not resting, you know? So before we started recording, you know, I was talking about how I went on this, um, retreat, this pilgrimage to Avila to, to study Teresa of Avila, who's a mystic and someone that we would consider a world changer, like within the Catholic church in Spain, I think she was 15th or 16th century. But I remember at the end of the retreat, telling the teacher Mir, who happened to be Mir Baisar, who's an amazing contemplative mystic, just saying, okay, so Teresa went into all this interior castle and got closer and closer and closer to the, to the divine, but she was still like pro slavery, like the slave trade's happening. She doesn't say anything about that. (laughs) She's still anti-Semitic. She's still this and that, you know what I mean? So it's kind of like, okay, I think there needs to be something more than just these sort of inner pathways to the divine in order to call it activism. Um, And certainly she was reforming some things within the church, but she was reforming only the things that were relevant to her and her body. So it wasn't intersectional. And I think in order to add that activism piece, we have to be engaged in intersectional justice work. Yeah. In my experience of, you know, the white contemplative world, so to speak, so often, you know, contemplative ways of being are are used, like you're saying, as this kind of, you know, excuse to avoid, to forego, to not do this going away from the world, not to love it more deeply or love its people more deeply or care more about justice and liberation for all people, but to go away from the world, to go away from the world and to find peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people are genuinely hurting because our world's horrible to everybody, but there aren't a lot of mystical teachers who are leading people beyond, okay, but what about me? (laughs) I mean, I remember when I was first going on my journey towards the sacred black feminine, towards, you know, the black Madonna and this whole journey that I've been on. And I remember kind of as a refugee from not particularly contemplative spaces in Christianity, going into these more contemplative Christian spaces and actually just feeling really hurt because I was looking for connection. I was looking for acceptance. I thought, oh, well, the reason why the the folks over in this area are racist is because they're not really contemplative. They're not really, they're just all heady, right? They're not connecting with their bodies and with the spirit. And then I go into these other spaces and it's just more privileged white people. (laughs) And I'm laughing about it now, but at the time when I felt lost and I felt like like anchorless, it was actually incredibly painful because I was looking for hope and hope was not there. So let's, let's talk a little bit more about that. In your experience of personal pilgrimage, you walked 400 miles across Europe to the ancient shrines of Black Madonnas. And in your work, and in particular in this book, you share more in depth about these experiences, these encounters. In your description of encountering Our Lady of Good Death, you write, I encountered the sacred Black feminine who steadied my first staggering steps beyond white male gods, barren patch of certainty and into the mystical unknown. In your relationship with Our Lady of the Good Death, that seemed to be kind of a a special connection for you. Could you share a little bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. You know, I was raised in a really, really, really intellectual home, a very intellectual Christian home. And then I was raised in academia. (laughs) So I was really attached to linearity and consensus and tradition and some of the um, more patriarchal ways of knowing. And those are not completely invalid ways of knowing, but I was trapped in that. 
And one of the things that I love, and I was trapped in that certainty. And for me to be faithful was to be certain um, in every area of my life. To be a faithful friend was to be certain that that this friendship was awesome. (laughs) To be a faithful daughter was to be certain that my role never needed to change. Like to be a faithful Christian was to keep believing even when doubt rose up to just squash it. (laughs) Question, squash. And so I realized though, some of the questions that were starting to come up about my experience as a black woman in the world could not be answered with those ways of knowing. And so I was really grateful to connect with this particular black Madonna who helps us die to some of the trappings of white patriarchy that hold us back. And she's called Our Lady of the Good Death because she kind of stands at the dividing line between life and death and promises us that if we die to some of these identities and these attachments, that she will help us find our true self. And I was really questioning a lot about who I was, who I was to God, who was God. Yeah, it was just really powerful to encounter a picture of her. She's she's unique um, because only a only a percentage of the Black Madonnas of the there are about four hundred and fifty around the world, but I'd say only a percentage of them look explicitly black, as in have what we would call African features. Many of them have what we'd call more Eurocentric features, um, and but are but are black for some reason or another, like their skin is black, but she doesn't, you know? And so that was powerful too, to really encounter someone who looks like they could have been my ancestor. And yeah, she really invites, I mean, the, the black Madonna in general is, you know, and the divine feminine in general really invites us past certainty and into, into uncertainty and into what, what magic can happen when we just open ourselves and start asking questions that we'd never asked before. Yeah. Could you share a little bit more about kind of the origin of the Black Madonnas and maybe your impetus to go seek them and and meet them? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll tell a little bit more about why I was so desperate (laughs) to meet them. Um, Having been raised in a Christian home and kind of being kind of straddling the Black Christian world and the white Christian world, although theologically they were very similar because they were both more conservative. And then spending a lot of time in my early career working at Christian Christian institutions of higher ed and also doing a ton of racial reconciliation work. I think I started to first have a big awakening around 10 years ago when Trayvon Martin was killed by George Zimmerman. And to to look around and see my community, both my like spiritual community and also my um, my professional communities responding the way that they did, you know, where there was a clear dividing line between black and white people. And so for the first time in my life, all the white people in my life who claimed that we were family were not listening to this national conversation that black people were having and kind of violently not listen. Like, I mean, like it was what rose to the surface during that was just huge for me. And I started to connect the dots between this white Jesus that I had been exposed to both in black church spaces and white church spaces. And of course, all over the country museums, (laughs) you know, the dollar bill says, and God, we trust on it next to George Washington, a white man. So, you know, it's just everywhere, this idea of a white, of a white God. And I really latched onto this idea that there's a problem with white Jesus. Not only is it historically inaccurate, but it says something about God's social location. It says something about who God cares about, who God stands with, who God relates to. And so I was very passionate about that. And a lot of my reconciliation work kind of had that piece. 
And it wasn't until 2016, in the run-up to Trump's election, that I started to look at Jesus's gender too, Jesus's exclusive male gender. Because, you know, when Trump, when Trump was running, and at first he was a joke, right? And no one thought he would get far. But then he becomes a serious candidate. And this was even before he was officially nominated by the Republican Party, but he was starting to make a lot of racist and xenophobic comments. And of course, I wasn't surprised when Christianity, broadly speaking, did not denounce him. Because I was like, oh yeah, I know they're racist. Like I've been dealing with the Christian church my whole life. I've been working in Christian institutions. I know white Christians are generally racist. The ones that aren't racist are not confronting their racist ones. You know, like it's a problem, right? So I was like, oh, I, I'm not surprised. But, but in the fall of 2016, when he started talking about assaulting white women, I was like, oh, surely, surely Christians are going to defend their precious white women. I mean, white femininity is like a fruit of the spirit. You know, like people take it so seriously in the church. (laughs) And so I was just like, for sure, they're going to come down on him. And when they did not defend their own white women, I was like, okay, the problem is not just white Jesus. The problem is male Jesus. God's social location is nowhere near women or black people and other people of color. And I have to start looking for an image of the divine that can speak to that. And so that sent me on my hunt for the just images. And I found the Black Madonna, who's a Black and female, sacred, ancient image of God that actually is technically Christian, although she's not owned by anyone. (laughs) That started the hunt. And one of the things I did learn is that, you know, there are about 450 like official Black Madonnas around the world. To be an official Black Madonna just means that you were, that you're, you have some sort of connection to the earth in your like lineage or your story. You have miracles associated with you. So kind of similar to sainthood, like they're like documented miracles that the church has, has, you know, officially said that was a miracle. And then also you're Black, she's Black. (laughs) And so um, there are about 450 of those, although there are thousands of Black virgins and those would just be ones that aren't famous, don't necessarily have miracles associated with them. So the Black Madonna name is actually like kind of the famous official ones. And they come from all over the place. I mean, like, why are they Black? Like, that's such an interesting question. Um, some of them are Black. Um, the region of France that I spent a lot of my time in on the pilgrimage has um, more Black Madonnas in that region than any other part of the world. France has more Black Madonnas than any other country. About oh, a little over 100 of them are in France. Spain has a lot too. Germany has a lot. So a lot of these are, um, Italy has a lot. Um, a lot of this has to do with the, the more influence in these like Southern European spaces. Um, the, I, so the part of France that I was doing my pilgrimage in had an 800 year occupation by the Moors. And so some of the black Madonnas are black because the Moors brought them. Um, some of the black Madonnas are black because they were brought back from the Crusades. Some of them are black because um, they're made from um, the black lava rock in the region that I was in in France. So Our Lady of the Good Death is actually made of the very black lava rock. That entire region is like a chain of, I think, 14 volcanic mountains. And so the, all the rock, all of the sand in that whole area just looks like pitch black. It's really beautiful. So some of them are just black because they're made of materials that are black. Um, and then there are a few of them that are black that have been blackened over time because all of, of all the candles <laughs> that have been lit in their presence. So every once in a while, you see a black Madonna being, quote, restored, end quote. And then what the restoration process is returning her to her original color, which means white for many of them. And there's a lot of controversy around that because they've 
they've been known for a thousand years as black. And remind me if this might be wrong, but when you talk about um, them being connected to the earth, that some of them, you know, were said to be like literally like found right in caves and totally many of them were like, uh, totally. Absolutely. Yeah. So very few of them in terms of their like legends in my book, I say like, you know, every black, black Madonna's are like Marvel superheroes. They all have these like origin stories and they're, they're like very elaborate and like contested. And like, it's really interesting to kind of get into it with local villagers about what their grandma said and you know, what their great aunt said about black Madonna. But, um, yeah, many of them were actually like, you know, according to tradition, found in the forest, found in the ground. Um, some of them, um, there are very few that like someone would say this person actually brought them here. One would be the Black Madonna of Riom, Martial, who was one of Jesus's 70 disciples, um, supposedly brought her here, brought her there in the first century. And so there's every once in a while, there's like a direct connection where one person is named to have been brought to, you know, to bring them there. But many of them have, were literally just like found by a spring, found under a tree. So, <laughs> and so, you know, the black Madonna of Arkansas and I, that's, she's not in my book, but I went to go visit her. I, w- I was in France the last three months. I just got home last week. Um, and so I went to go visit some new black Madonnas new to me. <laughs> They're actually very old. <laughs> Um, so she's from the 11th century and they found her in the 11th century, but a lot of people in her little village of like a hundred people believe that her body is actually, um, the, uh, an ancient Sibele, Sibyl statue. So many of the black Madonnas are connected to the, to the great dark goddesses of ancient times. Many of them have a direct connect, like people say, this is Isis or this, you know, so Sybil, Sibele, depending on how you pronounce her, um, is one of them, Diana, Artemis. And so she was found in the ground, but really it was sort of like an archaeological finding. And then people brought her into the church in the 11th century and she was placed at, you know, on the altar as the Black Madonna. Yeah. And what I love about, about your work and, you know, the, the theology around this also you know, while I was in seminary, I studied the Black Christ and, you know, Kelly Brown Douglas and James Cone and Deotis Roberts and Albert Clage Jr. You know, your work does something different in the way, you know, drawing us to the divine Black feminine does something different than drawing us to the Blackness of Christ. Did you, were you influenced at all by the work of those people in the Black Christ or? Oh, absolutely. I, I remember, gosh, I remember reading the first Cone book and just crying. You know, um, I also remember exactly where I was when I was watching a James Cone sermon, although he wouldn't probably call them sermons. He would call them lectures, but they were sermons. And he, he said, everything I do is for the liberation of black people. And I remember I was on my elliptical in my house watching it and I stopped and I thought nothing I do is for the liberation of black people. I'm out here doing quote reconciliation work in quote but it's not for the liberation of black people. It's for the like enlightenment of white people or something, you know, it's so that I can give white people ideas. (laughs) Yeah. So absolutely. And and I think, you know, the influence, of course, Kelly Brown Douglas, so many of them, I I don't think I would be where I am without liberation theology because liberation theology, including, uh, you know, Korean feminist liberation theology and, you know, Latinx, liberation theology and I love the Palestinian theologians, you know, like without them, I don't think I would have even known I get to have my own perspective on scripture. 
because I grew up in more or less evangelical theology where that was not taught. Like there was no prophetic interpretation of scripture. It was all incredibly rational and incredibly methodical. And so that, that was so powerful for me. That said, I do think there's an additional layer that I'm adding by bringing in the, the femininity and the femaleness of God, because I think that some of the, the liberation theology has still been really trapped in that linearity and really trapped in that um, much liberation theology happens outside of the academy. <laughs> the, so much of it, right? Like Muharista theology is really just Latinx women living their lives, right? Womanist theology is really just Black women living their lives. But unfortunately, the conversation has been sort of been owned by the academy. And I think what's really powerful about divine feminine theology is that it is like inherently grounded and in the woods and in conversations. It's very different. The modes of learning and the modes of acquiring information, you could say the like epistemology is very different than liberation theology because so much of liberation theology has been understood in academia. Whereas so much of like divine feminine theology is really just like happens at like Lilith Fair type places, you know, which is probably why the Academy hasn't taken it seriously because it's not academic in that sense. So I think that what I'm trying to do is bring some of the two together and it does it. And I think that the femininity of God does open up a lot of possibility and it takes away hierarchy in a way that just talking about the race of God might not get at. Yeah, a more embodied approach to understanding or to to theology itself, and and the way that some of the other theology in the academy is so limited and inaccessible, and and then when we look at you know this work of of the divine feminine, a real life experience, it, it's equalizing in that way because it, it, anyone who has a body can have a theology. That gives voice to a lot more people. But I also think it's really scary because it means patriarchy can't control. Because if I have a body and you have a body and everybody has a body, that we all have access to the truth or to a truth. And patriarchy can't just say, this is the truth. This is the, this is the consensus. Yeah, and the way that requires a discomfort because we do have to step into the uncertainty. We do have to go to that place of kind of letting ourselves feel and letting go of control. Mm-hmm. And, and trusting that, you know, which goes back to my, you know, definition of, of mysticism is like trusting my inner spiritual authority. And what, what, ha- what do I do when how I feel about a theological idea is giving me information that disagrees with what I've been taught to believe about a theological idea. And I think for so long and why it was so important for me to connect with the divine feminine in particular and those embodied ways of knowing is because I had learned to shut down any emotion or bodily sensation that was disparate from what I had been taught to believe. And so even if I was in these like church spaces or workspaces where I just would come home and feel like so tainted, like my identity was just so tainted and poisoned, I would brush that off and be like, well, Christina, you just need to like pray more or you just need to, you know, I remember trying to find ways, think ways to think 
about how horrible I, a theological justification for how horrible I felt all the time. And I remember a black evangelical megachurch pastor saying, you know, reconcilers are bridge build are bridges and bridges get stepped on. And I remember being so grateful for that cross theology <laughs> because it helped explain why I felt stepped on all the time and it gave, and it made it virtuous. And so rather than just listening to my body and being like, why do I feel stepped on all the time? That's not cool. What's going on here? Maybe I should extricate myself from this situation. I was instead looking for a theological explanation to make sense of it. So when I look back on that, I'm like, gosh, yeah, that's like, that's like the epitome of patriarchal theological exploration. How do I find something? How do I find a theological reason to explain my body? (laughs) (laughs) as opposed to how do I let my body birth wisdom about who I am in relation to these people? And also who is the God who's presiding over all this? And in your book, you write about the power of the practice of contemplative walking combined with mindfulness, combined with meditation and academic research. Did the academic research ever kind of get in the way with the embodied approach or vice versa? Yeah. So it was, it's always been a struggle for me to um, allow my body wisdom to come to the forefront just because of, I think the way I, the way I've been formed, I think that'll probably be a long-term growth edge for me, which I'm excited about. So, so, you know, one of the things that I did while I was on my pilgrimage is I actually didn't do much or any research on the Black Madonnas before I went to visit them. So I allowed the surroundings, the way they looked, um, their stance, their clothing, their, what was going on around them in the churches to speak into my experience of them. And then afterwards I would go and like read about origin stories and stuff like that. And some of the miracles and some of the things that were associated with them. So that was one thing that was really helpful. Writing the book is when I really had to integrate what I experienced on the pilgrimage. Um, I wish I could say in five weeks on that pilgrimage, I was, I came home and was like a completely different person. Um, (laughs) I was so, I was quite different and I, I had some, I already knew there were some changes that that were going to be happening. I was going to be making in my life uh, because of those encounters, but writing the book really forced me to integrate it. And so there were lots of times throughout the book. I mean, I spent about two years writing the book and there were many, many, many times where I would sit down to write a chapter and I would realize, you know what? I can't write this chapter about my need, my human need with integrity, unless I go and actually work with that because there are things coming up as I write it that I'm ashamed of. And I, I want to be, I want this, this book to be true, you know, I like, and so this idea of God as a black woman, like I'm always asking myself, if God is a black woman, what does that mean for me right now? And so it's, it, you know, so, so that, that was, that was one thing that helps me to get out of my head because so much of the book is my story. I mean, there's tons of like research and theology and stuff in there, but a lot of it's my story. And so since I was telling my story, I had to actually think about, well, what's happening inside my story, even as I write. And then also um, the challenge of telling my story forced me to be in my body because I'm really not a, I'm not a prose narrative prose person. Um, my first two books are almost ex- Exclusively, I mean, there, there are anecdotes and stories, but it's mostly just research. And I'm really good at that because um, that's what I was trained to do. <laughs> and so to make a, I mean, this book is over half memoir. 
And so to actually write, you know, essentially do creative writing was incredibly challenging to me. I felt really underprepared and under-resourced for it. And I, the, the way I dealt with that was by going for like three, four, five-hour walks in the morning. I was living in New Mexico at the time. And so um, the, the sun would rise early. It was the summertime. I'd get up at five and walk from five to about 10 or 11 and just spend time in my body. And then, and then in the afternoon, get to the writing. And that awakened that contemplative walking, that muscle got stronger and stronger. So it was actually able to be a partner to my academic acumen because I was working so hard to strengthen my contemplative. And the fact of the matter is, is I feel robbed actually by my academic training because I learned very early on in my contemplative journey when I guess I started about 10 years ago is that this is where my soul wants to be it feels like home in a way that academia never has. And I'm sad that it took me 30 years to find it because that's my spot <laughs> in my body, not just in my head. Yeah. It's, it feels very powerful to get there and then to write from that space. Like a, a culmination of integrating your, your most full self kind of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and so many people have called my book art, mm. you know, which I think is really powerful because it is certainly, you know, a lot of scholars have respected the work and said, yeah, this is great scholarship, but also for, for people to see it as art, I think really shows how much work I've done to integrate my art with my scholarship in my own life, you know, and, um, and, and art in general has played a huge journey. I mean, the, all the Black Madonnas are art, technically, you know, and it was the images of them that first awakened me to the sacred Black feminine. And so I do think that all of us benefit when we integrate our more scientific sides and our artistic sides, whatever that looks like. Yeah. You know, earlier in the conversation, we talked about the importance of like accessibility, um, you know, and I, one thing I love about your book is you also have pictures of many of these black Madonnas. So it kind of allows us to go there with you in a way, um, which is really, really powerful. And yeah, for those who can't, you know, afford or access, uh, seeing these black Madonnas in person or afford or access, you know, going on retreat or getting this silent weekend away or those kinds of things, how, how would you recommend people can get in touch with this, you know, kind of mystical unknown in everyday life? Yeah. Yeah. Well, to quote Kelly Brown Douglas, Christ is a black woman. Anytime black women are working for the liberation of their communities. I think that can be true for any race. You know, I think for black women who want to encounter the sacred black feminine, I'd say look around to the black women in your lives and look for people who are mothering and that doesn't have to be, have anything to do with biological mothering. Right. And I think for people who are not black, I would not necessarily recommend that because that could be a little bit like spiritual, social voyeurism. <laughs> but I would say, you know, um, what does it look like for you to encounter the divine in your life? Like, you know, it could be the sacred Black feminine, in which case I would say there's so many images of Black Madonnas around that are very accessible. And then there's just art too, not even the official ones, but I've allowed just Black art to speak 
truth to me about the divinity and sacredness of Black people. Um, but I think really what my book is about is finding ourselves in the divine. Of course, for me, that meant encountering the sacred Black feminine. And I want everyone to encounter the sacred Black feminine because I think it will heal our spiritual imagination. But I also want everyone to find the sacred, whatever they are, because <laughs> that will also heal our spiritual imagination because white Christ hasn't even, hasn't done that either for white people and for white men. If white people actually felt sacred, the world would be a different place. Um, and so I think the question is what are the practices that help one connect with your own sacredness? And that I think would, would depend on the person, but I think um, a lot of it has to do with spending time with the earth that nourishes us all the time, no matter what. I mean, my, I'm in New England, so my, the ground is covered in snow and it's like, wow, she's watering us even now. Even with everything dead, she's making sure we get the water that we need, you know? And it's just like, we don't stop often enough, I think, as people who've been, you know, have roots in Christianity to find our sacredness even in nature. Thank you so much for, yeah, taking the time to be with me today and for sharing your book with the world and sharing your life, your life in that, in that book. It's very, very holy work. So thank you. Thank you. Um, you, you asked another accessible way for people to meet the Black Madonnas. I'm actually leading a virtual pilgrimage <laughs> starting in um, April. And so if people would just get connected to my newsletter on my website, we'll keep them abreast of what that is. But we're going to visit every single Black Madonna in my book virtually. Get to, I'll tell stories that aren't in the book. And we'll also do some spiritual practices to help us connect with the essence of that particular Black Madonna. And so the idea is for people to have their own experience, you know, their own pilgrimage. So that'll be really fun. Great, great. Also, your exclusive content on Patreon is wonderful. So highly recommend being a patron. Yeah. Woo woo, Patreon. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time to listen to today's episode. To support this work and get sneak peeks of new episodes, join me at patreon.com slash Cassidy Hall. The podcast is created and edited by me, Cassidy Hall. Today's episode features the song Trapezoid Instrumental by Emily Sankofa, which she has generously allowed us to use. Please find this song and more from Emily Sankofa on your favorite streaming platform like Spotify or by visiting e-sankofa.com. The podcast is created in partnership with The Christian Century, a progressive ecumenical magazine based in Chicago. The podcast is also created in partnership with Enfleshed, an organization focused on spiritual nourishment for collective liberation. For liturgical resources, head over to enfleshed.com. <laughs>